Hey there, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that has walked, oh, a long way, all the way to the end of the seventh canto of Purgatorio. And this is our second episode on this very passage. If you're just joining us now for the first time, you... <laughs> God help your mortal soul. We've just come off an incredibly complicated passage full of kings and rulers and marquees, all sorts of figures in a dale of purgatory. This dale is going to befuddle us for a while now into the future. We had an episode just previously in which we, along with the Pilgrim Dante, his guide Virgil, and his second guide, Sordello, have looked down and enumerated the kings, rulers, even down to the marquees in this dale. And I, in that podcast episode, went through who these figures are, just kind of an identifying episode, one in which we glossed the passage, to use a word that Dante would know. In this episode of the podcast, we're going to take that same passage, and this time we're going to ask interpretive questions. And I'm going to tell you right up front, I have answers to some of these questions, and I have no answers to others. So this is uh, the way the podcast is going to increasingly run as we move through comedy. My ability to have an answer will sometimes be undone by the text itself. Let's just read the passage again. Lines 82 through 136 of Canto 7 of Purgatorio. This is my English translation of the passage. You can find it on my website, markscarbro.com or walkingwithdante.com. All goes to the same place. You can see the translation and read along there. You can also drop comments and talk to me about any possible answers you might have to some of the interpretive questions I'm raising. But otherwise, let's just remind ourselves of the passage. I saw souls singing Salve Regina and seated in the verdant grass and among the flowers. These souls hadn't been visible outside of that valley. Even before the last little bit of sun heads for its nest, began the Mantuan Sordello who'd led us there. Don't ask me to walk down and be your guide among them. From this embankment, you'll know their characteristic gestures and faces better than if you were down among them. The one sitting up highest with the look of someone who dodged doing what he should have done and whose mouth doesn't move with the others in song was the Emperor Rudolph, who might have been able to salve the wounds that have brought death to Italy. It's really late for another to resurrect her. That guy who has the look as if he's comforting the emperor ruled the land where the waters are born that take the Moldau to the Elba and the Elba on to the sea. His name was Ottokar, and he was a better man in diapers than his bearded son Wenceslas, who feeds on lust and insolence. The one with the nose that seems so narrow and is caught up in discussions with the one with such a kindly face... He died while fleeing, that is, while deflowering the lily. Check out how he beats his chest, and look how that other one sighs, even as he lets his cheek rest in the palm of his hand. Those guys are the father and father-in-law of the plague of France. They know his life of vice and wickedness, which is why grief seems to run through them like a lamb. The one who's so burly and tall, who's singing along with a guy with such a manly nose, was suited up with a cord of every honor. 
And if the one had succeeded him, I, I mean the young kid sitting behind him, then that worth would have been poured from one vessel to another. That sort of thing can't be said of other heirs. James and Frederick have their own kingdoms. Neither possesses a better bloodline. Human worth rarely rises up branch by branch. The one who bestows it does so on purpose, so it must be asked of him. My words apply both to that big-nosed guy and to the other one, that Pedro, who sings with him, while Apulia and Provence are brought to such sorrow. In every way, the seed is inferior to the plant, so that Constance may boast more about her husband than Beatrice or Margaret may of theirs. See the king of the simple life sitting over there, that Henry of England? His tree may well branch into better progeny, and lowest among them all, his eyes lifted up as he sits on the ground, is William the Marchese, because of whom Alessandria and its war caused Monferrato and Canavese to cry out in sorrow. I have already glossed this passage in the previous episode, so now we're going to turn to interpretive questions. And let me just, before we do that, say one thing. This is going to be increasingly the strategy of our podcast. Our walk with Dante is entering more complicated matters. And what's going to happen to us and what I anticipate, although unlike Dante, I am no prophet, what I anticipate happening to us is that we're going to come across longer and longer and more difficult passages that I'm going to have to first read and gloss and then come back to and ask questions of the passage. I think this is probably setting us up for a strategy that will occur frequently in front of us because, again, the passages themselves are going to get longer, less easy to break up into pieces, and they're going to become more and more complex with theology, with questions of ontology, of being, with questions of epistemology, knowing this is all going to weigh quite heavily on us going forward. So this schema of a passage with its gloss and then a passage with interpretive questions is probably what we have ahead of us in the weeks, months, and gosh, dare I say years yet to come. How do we know these are the negligent rulers? This is a big question, actually. In line 91 through 92, we see an emperor sitting there, Emperor Rudolph, and it says the one sitting up highest with the look of someone who dodged doing what he should have done. How do we know this bit applies to all of them? In fact, we don't. Dante sets it up so that he explains the first one of the figures as someone who didn't do exactly what he was supposed to do. And the way this is usually interpreted is that these are rulers hmm, from vast, giant, holy Roman emperors down to small time. I don't want to be too crass, but small time marquees who control smaller amounts of territory. These guys were so involved in the political, economic and social strife of their day, trying to do something 
honorable, perhaps, perhaps. See, that's a question with Pedro down in Aragon, but okay, we're going to give it to him, perhaps, but that they neglected their religious duties. And so they were, and this is what every critic says, the negligent rulers. We can kind of see that with the first one, but how do we know that's the truth of all of them? How does Pedro the Third of Aragon, who's not actually a very nice guy, how does he fit into that? He's certainly not nice by modern standards. I think we kind of should accept that this idea that these are the guys who dodged what they should have been doing and for Dante should have been doing would be following a Christian sacramental life or at least involved in the pursuit of holiness in some way, we can then generalize that out to the list. But you should know it's tentative. It is a little squishy. Do I think Dante intends for it to be squishy? No, I don't. I actually think he intends to set up the list that way. Listen, you know that I run for ambiguity and ambivalence and gray matter and all that stuff. You know I run in that direction. But in this case, I actually don't think Dante is intentionally making it difficult for us to generalize. I think he's trying to get through the list, and so he's condensing it a bit and just putting the rationale up front, dodged doing what he should have done. And then we're supposed to take that out to the list. But you could certainly argue and you would not be on shaky ground to argue that it's difficult to see how this full list, Henry III of England, fits exactly that description. I think Dante wants it to. Whether it does or not, now we would verge off into cultural criticism, and you could get there from here. Listen, uh, you know, there's plenty of uh, post-structuralist and post-colonialist critics who would get there to cultural criticism from here. I'm more comfortable just sitting back here and saying, okay, yeah, sure. This, um, this description of this first guy, Rudolph, it fits the whole list. They're singing Salve Regina. Why is that important? Well, Salve Regina, as I told you last time, is an antiphon traditionally in Dante's day sung at Vespers. It is, of course, sung to the Virgin Mary, but here's the important part of it. It is sung as if the singer is in exile. There is a way in which the singer of Salve Regina is in, and I'm going to use very biblical terminology here, the land of Egypt, calling out to be delivered. (laughs) Think of Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments. To be delivered through the Red Sea and into the promise land. It is a hymn from exile. This surely has ramifications not only for these people in his family, but Dante, who is himself in exile. That this antiphon appears here is really important not only to Dante's growing acceptance and presence in the poem as someone in exile, but also for these figures. It puts these very important global figures on an even ledge with Dante, we're all in exile. Now, you might be saying, wait a minute, exile in purgatory? Yes, the Exodus story is very important, especially to the opening cantos of Purgatorio. We've dodged it a couple times and we've landed on it a couple times with this idea of coming up 
through the water and across the water safely onto dry land is very crucial to understanding the opening bits of Purgatorio. We have passed beyond the trouble and onto dry land, but if we go back to the story of the ancient Israelites, when they come through the water onto the dry land, they then disobey God at Mount Sinai. They uh, worship an altar. Moses cracks the tablets, and they are condemned to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. There is much to say about how purgatory is wandering in the wilderness. Yes, you are indeed headed toward the promised land, but before you get there, you do have to wander around a bit. If we think about these souls circling and circling this mountain, then we do start to pick up this wandering in the wilderness idea. It's sitting back behind the text, sometimes more forward and stated as here with Salve Regina, since it's in the antiphon, and sometimes more removed. But nonetheless, you can be saved and in exile. Just stop and think about that existentially. You can think about that religiously too, but just think about that humanistically and existentially that you can be saved while still in exile. You can be redeemed. You can be right. You can be made whole without feeling like you're home yet. Oh, wow, that is a human problem. You can feel the space in that, and you might even be able to feel the truth of it. Things are right in a marriage, or things are right in your home, or things are right in your job, and yet you don't quite feel like you're home. That might be the overall tenor of Purgatorio. Notice that it's not too steep to get into this dale. Remember, we've had already one really steep scramble climb. But if you remember getting up to the rim of this vale to look down at these negligent rulers, we're just going to go ahead and use that term, even though I problematized it a little bit, getting up and looking down at them is still easy. And we've been told it's not very steep. Is that significant to the allegory? And it might be. Because, if you remember, the end of Canto Six was that invective against the strife and political corruption of Italy. And now we come to the end of Canto Seven, and we see all these rulers, many of them crying or needing to be consoled because they didn't fulfill all they should have done in life. Maybe that's a, what do I want to say, a parallel, that we had a steep rhetoric in the invective, and here we have a gentler, more pastoral landscape as we see the penitential rulers crying over their lack of full certitude or their lack of full moral virtue. I told you in the last episode that line 96 of this passage verges toward nihilism. And we talked about that line that said it may be too late for anyone to resurrect Italy. And I want to come back to that question. Is this nihilism? I don't think so. I think it gets very close to nihilism in terms of Dante, because Dante is, of course, part of the Italian peninsula. And this is his home territory. So I think it gets very Dark, but nihilism is too, well, it's too 20th century, 21st century a word, but it's also maybe too strong a word. What it gets is dark. 
Dante seems to be losing hope in that line. You should just know that's line 96 of the passage, that line of it may be too late for a resurrection for Italy. That line has caused acres and acres of critical commentary. Why does Dante seem to lose hope? Dante, who always seems to have hope, why does he lose hope? Is this now that Henry VII has failed as he tried to descend into Italy and fight off the Papal States and fight off the French king? Dante is feeling particularly dark about his own times? Maybe. Dante never gives up hope. He's always hopeful for some kind of redemption. He's always writing (laughs) comedy, not tragedy. So that line does stand out. It jumps off the page, especially because it's got that resuscitation or resurrection language in it. I mean, can you be beyond even God's help? It's getting really dark. I would again say it's not nihilistic, but man, he's on the cusp of it just as he's on the cusp of this dale. The first instance of an unworthy heir appears to be this autocar and his son Wenceslas. And Wenceslas appears to be completely unworthy. And it goes on through the passage in this way, continually telling you that honor is not inherited. This has caused some problems in the history of this canto. A lot of people, particularly during strife in Italy and particularly during strife even here in the United States, critics have wanted to see this passage as kind of a proto-democratic plea from Dante. That is, Dante saying that honor is not inherited, but it has to be earned. Actually, the passage doesn't say that. I want to talk about that in a minute. But we don't have to even jump out to Dante's treatise on the church and the state, the monarchia, to know that. We can just look at this passage and we can see that there is indeed a kind of elitism going on in this passage. These are, after all, global leaders. And Dante doesn't seem to have trouble with the amount of power they control. It's how they use it. Dante seems to yearn, and this is going to sound weird, so forgive me, but he seems to yearn for a just dictator, somebody who is a strong man who can put things right, but is nonetheless righteous. Is that a problem? Of course. Do people in times of turmoil reach for these people? Of course. All you have to do is look at modern day Hungary. Dante is not saying that he should be governed by a meritocracy or that he should be governed by some way in which you earn political power. That's an overreading and a common overreading of this passage. We should look at what the passage itself says. At line 121, it says, human worth rarely rises up branch by branch. The one who bestows it, that's God. The one who bestows it does so on purpose so that it must be asked of him. That immediately tells us that, in fact, this isn't a meritocracy, but rather we should have a humble leader who asks God for direction and control. See, a just dictator. And it's not rising through merit nor through family ties, but through one's relationship with God. That's what Dante's pushing. An enlightened dictator would be one who asks 
the one who bestows these things, God, for the righteous gifts. You know, I'm going to have all kinds of problems with this. I'm going to jump away from it. I'm going to get very nervous by it. You know all of this. And I don't need to draw that out. Great. That's my reaction to it. But if we're going to do honor to the text, which you know is my primary motive, if we're going to do that, then we should see what Dante's saying, which is that worth and honorary worth come from God. They're descended on rulers who ask for it. And the problem is that their children often think they just deserve it because they're their children instead of their children asking for it as the initial rulers did. Here's a kind of silly question. Is there humor in this passage? After all, we have big-nosed Charles of Anjou. We have little-nosed Philip III or Philip the Bold. Even that idea that Pedro III of Aragon is suited up with the cords of honor, it's a little bit comical. And in fact, for the past, let's say, 150 years, almost every critic sees a little bit of humor here. Oh, the big-nosed guy and the little-nosed guy and the corded-up guy. I'm actually not sure that their physical features are funny. And I want to push back against a lot of modern criticism. I don't think Dante is bringing the figures low by pointing out physical faults in their appearance. I think that they are already being brought low by being here and being comforted by their mortal enemies. We talked about this last time. They're brought low crying over their problems and their faults and the way they failed to complete their honorable mission with the very people who helped them fail to complete it. That's how they're brought low. Imagine how Dante, who was a commoner, would see a monarch. You would see a monarch from afar, and you would notice something. Oh, I don't know. Edward I of England was had a notoriously very small nose, and you may know this, but Henry VIII of England had horrible, oh my gosh, horrible sores on his legs. Supposedly, you could smell them from across the room. And let's face it, the likes of you and I, we would probably be across the room, far across the room from Henry VIII. And the same with Dante. Physical features call out these monarchs because that's how you would see them from afar. And I don't know that it's so funny to mention their big noses and their little noses. It just may be the way to demarcate them, to say... Hey, I've seen this guy, and hey, I recognize this guy, and hey, I know a little bit about this guy. It may actually not be funny, and I know 99.99999% of critics right now see this as a little bit of levity in a heavy passage. I think we might just get physical characteristics, and they might be part of Dante's attempting to differentiate these figures as he would see them, which is from far away, and just noticing their most prominent physical feature. I want to go back to that bit about how human worth is rarely extended down the generations that I just said. And I want to say again that I don't think Dante is any proto-democratic voice, but I want to cheer him on for running against his day and age. In his day and age, honor is transferred father to son, especially in landed titles and especially in royalty. That he seems to be saying, no, 
It's actually not that your dad ruled, and so you should rule, but <laughs> use the very British phrase, come at the hour, come at the man. That's what he seems to be saying. Now, listen, I'm saying father and son and man, and I'm using a lot of male pronouns here, but I think that's the way Dante sees it. I don't think Dante really understands much about women in power. Beatrice, notwithstanding, I think Dante and political power, that's a male nexus we can push back about that, of course, in our personal lives. But I think in the poem itself, we're dealing with fathers and sons and we're dealing with Dante seeing political power as mostly male. But let me just also say this. There's two interesting side points to that. First, in Christian faith, faith is not transferable. If I am a Christian, I take the sacraments. Let's go back to Dante's Catholicism. I take the sacraments. I follow the liturgy. I do all the things I'm supposed to do. Just because I have a kid doesn't mean that he gets my faith. He has to then decide on his own or, of course, her own. But in this context, his own. He has to decide on his own to then follow that faith. So in Christian theology, faith is not transferable by generations. And Dante is very much taking that to heart. And furthermore, he seems to disagree with himself because when we get toward the end of the passage, he says, well, there's the English king, Henry III, and his lineage may produce better progeny. Well, now suddenly he backed up. (laughs) And basically, he's complimenting, quietly, but complimenting Edward I of England, the Justinian of English law. He's offering a way in which, in fact, there may be sons who rise to the occasion of their father. But I think what we should see there is that it is not the norm. But when it doesn't happen, then we should look for someone else who will follow the dictates of God using Dante's terminology and become an effective political leader. Do I think this? Is this my political stance? No. But let's deal with what's in front of us, which is the poem. Here's yet another question. (laughs) So Canto 6 ends with that big invective, and now we get these sorrowing, negligent monarchs, rulers, all the way down to this marquee at the end. Are these two connected? Well, it seems so, right? Because Canto 6 is half narrative and then half invective, and this is not quite half and half, but this is a big narrative section with Sordello. And then we get this, the list, the chronicle of these rulers. And they do seem to be connected. They seem to be two sides of the same coin. That is, Canto Six, the invective is the what do I say, righteous indignation at political strife. And this here is a kind of um, gentle, caressing move toward these rulers who are crying, who are singing Salve Regina, who did their best but still couldn't quite get it all done. We also know that they're linked because if you remember in Canto 6, Albert came up really early on. Oh, Albert, how come you didn't come down in Italy and set everything right? And here we have Rudolph, well, that's really important because of the way that they're connected with each other. We have these father-son bonds in Albert and Rudolph, and Dante leaves out a ruler here. He leaves out uh, Adolf, but that's okay. He did, Either he doesn't know that there's an interim Holy Roman Emperor, or he just doesn't want to think about it. But whatever, we've got Albert in six, and we've got Rudolph in seven, so they're connected for the Holy Roman Empire, and Henry the Seventh, great, 
Pope of Dante is going to follow in their footsteps. You should know that neither Albert nor Rudolf, nor for that matter, Adolf, but again, Dante drops him. None of those people was crowned Holy Roman Emperor, although they were elected Holy Roman Emperor. That instantly up front ties these passages together. But I think we see these sorrowing monarchs crying almost as a response to that invective. We've got this prophetic denunciation in six, and now we have weeping rulers and leaders. Surely that's emotionally connected. Let me ask you a question that has absolutely no answer. It's a speculative question, and we can't base anything on the text for an answer. Who is the intended audience of this passage? Think about Dante in exile, on the run, living amongst warlords, being protected by them. He comes into this passage. He's writing it. Now, let's go to Dante the poet. He's writing it, right? And off we go down the list of all of these negligent rulers, Who is the intended audience? Who does he want to read this? We've had something like this before with the murderers in the boiling river of blood, but that seems more cursory than this. That's the best word. It seems more dismissive, quicker. You know, here's so-and-so, here's so-and-so, here's so-and-so, here's so-and-so. This one, we tend to linger on the figures. We notice their physical attributes. We hear something about their emotional state now. Most of them are crying or weeping or singing. Who is the intended audience here? And this may be an answer. I've got a speculative answer, but you may have others. I think the intended audience uh, for this passage may well be future generations. I think there is a way that Dante is coming to understand that his poem may outlive him. And it may go on, especially in the reception of Inferno, it may go on long beyond him. And given that... There may be a way in which this recounting of the rulers of the late 1200s and the strife of the late 1200s in Canto 6 is setting up a historical view. What do I want to say? This is Dante giving us the big overview of a historian saying, oh, look at all this. This is what is happening. This was went wrong with the late 1200s. And in doing so, he is acting much more like a historian than a poet. And I think that may indicate, for me at least, that Dante is starting to understand that his poem has a wider, dare I say, continental audience than initially imagined when comedy starts. And I think we could maybe point to this passage as this kind of bird's eye historical view. That may be part of the intended audience. And what I'm telling you is you may be the intended audience and I may be the intended audience for a more expansive historical understanding of the times. And if that's the case, if we're pulling away from the pilgrim and his worries in hell to a bigger historical landscape, then I would say this this indicates that Dante understands that the importance of his poem is growing, and he may be coming to the notion that comedy may well outlive him. 
it outlived him by 700 years. So there you go. And maybe more from now. So, uh, you know, he's right. It's getting to be a bigger poem. And he's got to have a bigger perspective to encompass a bigger poem. We're going to get to more of that as we enter Canto 8 in the next episode. Canto 8 of Purgatorio is hard. Then we're going to get to a few easier cantos. Before we go back to the hard stuff in the middle of Purgatorio. Aid is hard. It's hard to make sense of it. But you know what? Let us buckle our seatbelts and be in for once. <laughs> I guess we're not walking. We're driving. Let's drive ahead with a buckled seatbelt into Keto Aid. To do that, you got to subscribe to this podcast. If you don't mind rating it, liking it, doing all that to it <laughs> would be great. It's a great way for you to help me keep the podcast alive. I'm happy to be doing it with you and glad to be on this walk. Mm, whoa. This drive? Okay, this drive in a podcast with you and I'll see you as we careen oh my metaphors are going crazy careen into Cato 8 on the next episode of Walking with Dante I'm Mark Scarborough I'll see you then